You know, I've been around a long time. I know how hard this is. From the political science department at UW-Madison. Am I exasperated? Absolutely, I'm exasperated. I'm Adam Wigger. This country's gone through tough times before, and we're going to do it again. And I'm Sam Beisman. This is more work than in my previous life. I thought it would be easier. And this is 1050 Bascom. Today on 1050 Bascom, we are excited to collaborate with the Grass Camp Center for Real Estate at the UW-Madison Business School to talk with Paige Glotzer, a professor of history at UW-Madison, to talk about housing segregation in U.S. cities from a historical perspective. Professor Glotzer recently published her first book, How the Suburbs Were Segregated, Developers and the Business of Exclusionary Housing, 1890-1960. to it charts how suburban developers, including Baltimore's Roland Park Company, ushered in modern housing segregation with the help of transnational financiers, real estate institutions, and public policymakers. The effects of their efforts continue to be felt today. She was also interested in the connections between the rise of Jim Crow and colonialism and slavery worldwide. We are grateful for the opportunity to talk today to Professor Glotzer about her research and teaching interests and its application to politics and policy today. Thank you so much for being with us today, Professor Glotzer. We're super excited to sit down with you and, and, and chat today. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Let's start with a little bit just about yourself and your teaching and research interests. We're kind of curious about what set you on the pathway to becoming a professor and studying this area of work. Like, were you a history and politics junkie as a kid or... Like, what about in high school and college? Just, like, what shaped your academic and intellectual interests towards history, race, segregation, and housing policies? The very first thing, actually, that, that set me down this path was just looking around when I was growing up and, and asking questions. I, I was always kind of turning to the, to the adults in my life and being like, why is that, like, that thing that, that way? Or why is that building over there? And why is that bridge over there? And so I think I just had a curiosity about the built environment, about how things worked. And I think that over time, I, I translated that primarily into a love of history, since a lot of those answers, was off, they were often historical. But I think that as time went on as well, especially in college, I became increasingly interested in how politics and history intersected. Uh, so when I was an undergrad, uh, feels like a lifetime ago, I actually double majored in political science and history. And I took more political science classes in college than history classes, even though I became a history professor. So that love of politics really informs how I look at the past, and it informs the topics that I teach and that I research. Uh, so now um, at UW-Madison, I primarily teach classes on American history that have to do with politics, uh, the economy, and cities. That also then really tied into my research interest, which is housing segregation, how it was financed, how people came to power, uh, and why did people maintain power, and why were others shut out? So I think that at the heart of all those interests, kind of it's, it's that, that through line of politics in the past. Yeah, that is so interesting. And we are so extremely excited to, you know, hear more in depth about your research. But before we get into that, can you give the listeners like the like a small crash course on what it is about like housing segregation and how, 
You know, it sits at the intersection of economics, politics, and race in the United States. Could you give like a little teaser or, you know, a little synopsis of the research that you cover and the research that you're really interested in? Of course. Uh, So I just published a book last year, um, 2020, called How the Suburbs Are Segregated. And in that book, I look at the history of how um, certain white housing developers in the 19th century got the investment and initially the local power to create new types of planned communities, new types of spaces, really, that kind of changed the geography of where people lived and how people lived. But what they did was they tied their profits to experimenting with racial segregation along with class segregation. Those two things often function together. So I looked then at how uh, these local developers translated what they were doing city by city into a national political platform in the early 20th century through real estate associations. And then when the Great Depression happened in the 1930s, the federal government was looking to have some big solutions to a housing crisis and an economic crisis. I look at how those realtors worked with policymakers to turn segregation into some of the country's first nationwide housing policies. I think redlining is probably the most well-known, but I look, at, I look at that in a lot of detail, but I also then go beyond redlining and look at the legacy of that moment, why it continued, and other forms of housing segregation that also outlasted some of those very developers and are still with us today in the 21st century. You brought up uh, redlining there kind of briefly. For our listeners who might not be familiar, could you explain to us what uh, redlining is in layman's terms? Redlining is one of the most important moments in U.S. history for understanding how racism has worked and continues to work. So uh, redlining was essentially a, a basis for what I mentioned, the federal housing policy. So the federal government during the 1930s was trying to figure out how to stop uh, a lot of property owners from losing their properties because they couldn't pay mortgages. It was the Great Depression. A lot of people could not pay mortgages. So what they did was they created essentially a whole agency that was going to create new finance terms for mortgages. They were going to make it easier for banks that were kind of stuck with all these mortgages that people couldn't pay. And they were going to also help people by saying, we'll take your mortgages directly, us, the federal government, we'll change the rules, we'll make it easier for you to repay, and then we'll handle your repayments. So this was a huge intervention and some ways a bailout of property owners. But the federal government said, if we're going to get involved with this, we're going to create rules for and criteria for who we're going to help, where we're going to help, and where we're not and who's not going to get this assistance that might make the difference between having a home and not having a home. Now, this is where they turned to realtors who for years had essentially um, had created a segregated housing market. And these realtors, these generally white men uh, for various reasons said, all right, the best way to think about a good property to handle is to look at things like race, to look at um, is a property kind of, does it look suburban or does it look urban? And is the future of that property going to show increasing in value or decreasing in value? And so race and racism really sat at the center of how the federal government decided what and who to help with. And the reason why this is called redlining 
is because the federal government mapped all of these rules onto over 200 cities across the country, including Madison uh, and Milwaukee and Chicago and areas that were um, considered no-go zones were colored red on the map. And if you look at the reasons why areas were colored red on the map, very often you find explicit mention of race. So if an area um, had any type of African-American population, regardless of how affluent they were, regardless of what the houses looked like, generally that was a cause for redlining. Uh, and so that term has then be gone beyond that initial policy and it's now kind of come to stand in for how racial discrimination can create entire areas that essentially are deprived of resources, especially government resources, but also private resources um, from say corporations as well. So, I mean, literally there, it was, there were actual red lines drawn around these places. Wow, I mean, that is, that is fascinating. And then you, you mentioned, though, that redlining is one major piece of this puzzle, but there's a lot of other policies going on as well that kind of informed and then created the segregation of American cities and suburbs. Could you talk about some of those a little bit as well, maybe some of the, the lesser known policies that people who maybe know about redlining might not know? Yeah, so uh, I think that um, if you think about how housing sits at the center of redlining, and then you start to think about all the ways that housing kind of have relates to other, other areas of life, you start to touch on a lot of different policies very quickly. So for instance, uh, school funding. School funding is often tied to taxes on property. So if there's redlining, that means there's also going to be unequal uh, funding for schools depending on where they are and who lives there. So that's another way that racism gets mapped on to a whole set of policies, education policies. So that, that's one. Uh, there are all sorts of uh, histories of job discrimination, employment discrimination, um, school admissions, so university admissions, there's a whole history of, of segregation there and kind of back and forth about what legal remedies are uh, acceptable. So there are all sorts of policies there as well. But I want to say, actually, a lot of policies concerning finance and business have um, racial discrimination kind of sitting there, even if it's below the surface. So I think that one thing to dig into, for instance, is where, uh, for instance, do uh, corporate warehouses get cited, right? Where, who determines where industrial buildings can go or who determines what, uh, what are the rules of essentially receiving money to build something? A lot of those decisions, which seem potentially to be colorblind, actually go back to how uh, something like race is tied to things like property value, is tied to uh, voting power, um, is tied to political districting. Um, incarceration is very much a part of this too, which is very much something rooted in a long history of racism in America. So I think actually the question is what doesn't racism touch when you're thinking of policies in American history, local or national. How does like zoning, and I'm thinking of, you know, like multi-use versus like single family versus multifamily, how does zoning play into all that? Well, uh, I mean, it's a great question, Adam. Uh, zoning, so I think to start with, zoning is not a national policy like redlining. Zoning is always local, but there's a kind of very intricate relationship between zoning policy and, and things that are national. But what is zoning? So zoning actually is something that uh, is, it's the way that local governments 
decide what are acceptable uses of land. Now that seems maybe boring on the surface, but historically that's actually one of the tools that local governments had to segregate areas, to determine, for instance, say um, the environmental uh, conditions of areas. Um, and for example, uh, African-American neighborhoods in the early 20th century were often zoned industrial. So that seems like that's a type of use. Okay, industrial buildings can go in this part of the city, which happens to also have African-American neighborhoods. But that also means then that there's going to be really poor health outcomes for people who live in that neighborhood, those neighborhoods. Um, it also means there's going to be more pollution there. It also means that those houses won't be worth as much because people may not want to buy houses that are going to possibly be next to factories. So when you start to dig into the zoning decisions, the, the creation of those zones, industrial zones, residential zones, commercial zones, what you're actually seeing is layers and layers of local decision making that often reflected how those in power viewed different residents and different areas of that town or city. Um, now, in my book, I actually also look at the origins of that zoning, use zoning. And it actually started out as a different policy altogether, which was racial zoning. So in Baltimore in the early 1910s, um, a group of white homeowners in a neighborhood in Baltimore were very upset that a black lawyer named Ashby Hawkins bought a house in that neighborhood and rented it out to his law partner. And after they actually tried to violently uh, get, get those people out of, of that property by breaking the windows through mob violence, they organized to create, to, to help Baltimore pass a policy that actually designated zones where black people could live and where white people could live. It was called the West Ordinance, but it really was also called the Segregation Ordinance. There were copycat ordinances just like that, zoning ordinances and laws all around the country until the Supreme Court said that that racial zoning was unconstitutional. They said that in 1917. And it's no coincidence that right after that, right after that ruling, Buchanan v. Worley in 1917, government started use zoning because it seemed colorblind. So unlike this unconstitutional zoning, this would be constitutional because it seemed colorblind but it really was actually doing the same things. It was trying to segregate where people could live. Within that, you started to talk about like the influence of some of these outside groups on local politics. And in your book, I know you talk about, or also in your research, Roland Park Company, like one of these huge developers out here. How are these suburban developers exerting their power in local politics? And how is it affecting the local politics of you know these areas that are becoming super segregated? So in the 20th century, uh, suburban developers gained a lot of power to set the kind of national rules and also national ideas about real estate. Uh, and there are a lot of reasons why those developers, rather than like all other types of realtors, gained that special power. But what they were doing that gave them some notoriety and some cachet within the real estate industry was that they were creating entire, often planned communities and this is where uh, I think you get the idea that was so, so uh, foundational to the American dream in the 20th century, that a single family house on a nice windy suburban street with lots of trees was the ultimate success story. If you, if you made it in life, you were gonna live in a place that looked like that. 
Now, many of these suburbs were segregated, and that actually contributed to their cachet amongst white people. And it contributed to the idea that success meant living in a segregated neighborhood. So it actually became aspirational for a lot of people, actually including also a lot of immigrants. We, we talk about the American dream, a lot of people who were very upwardly mobile. Um, and so this did a few things. This helped to reinforce that this was a type of business that would bring a lot of profit if you went into real estate. So suburban development became kind of the most coveted and most respected type of real estate business you could have. Uh, which presented a whole host of opportunities for those developers, but it also really physically shaped the landscape. So it meant that you saw a transformation of the American landscape throughout the 20th century to essentially be one of car-centered sprawl uh, with single-family homes on these dead-end cul-de-sac kind of streets. And so that that has a lot that had a lot of impact on things that then happen later with infrastructure development. Where do highways go? Why cars got centered in transportation policy? Why railroads and, uh, essentially were torn up and replaced by things that like buses? Uh, it, so I think that when you start again, looking at the kind of domino effect of what suburban developers are able to do, you start to really see a kind of fundamental and literal reshaping of the landscape of the United States that I think also continues to have a lot of important legacies um, within real estate as well. Uh, property value is still tied to these perhaps even outdated notions about the desirability of a single family home. Um, but it also means that they help real estate, uh, they help the realtors gain political power because they seemed very respectable and they were willing to be these consultants on housing policy and help share their practices with other realtors. So it also means that when we look at the way that um, whole industries like the real estate industry lobby for power locally and nationally, we also owe a lot of those current forms uh, to suburban developers as well. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm so glad you brought up transportation. Have you ever heard of the Facebook group, um, trans or what is it, New Urbanist Memes for Transit-Oriented Teens? Yes, I love that group. Okay, amazing. <laughs> uh, that's, that's all I have to say, Sam, if you, if you mm -hmm. wanted to get in there. We're, we're, we're out here uh, putting the meme plugs in the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, if I also could reveal maybe my, my digital age for a minute. I remember back when I, I, joined, I joined Facebook in 2005. I remember one of the very first groups I ever saw was called Suburbia, where they cut down trees and named the streets after them. Uh, so I think that goes hand in hand with what evolved into those, those kind of catchy transportation meme groups as well. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but, uh, you know, take it back to a bit more serious and arguably more influential topic than memes, uh, as influential as they are. We're starting to get into these kind of bigger picture ideas about how the history of housing and redlining and all and, uh, racism and segregation, etc., have influenced the larger picture of America and just the overall trajectory of its history. So to step back for a minute, I want to ask, what can the history of housing tell someone about American history? It's a big question, but I honestly think that housing history is American history because property ownership has been so central 
to American politics right from its, uh, its origins, um, its origins in settler colonialism, uh, its origins in the founding, um, the founding kind of father's moment in the, in the 18th century. I mean, the initial uh, provisions for who could vote in the United States included being a property owner. So property ownership, and that really for most people means housing, um, completely and utterly dominates politics in ways that cross the aisle very often, um, and also place potential limits on, I think, the political imagination for really creating perhaps a more equal or equitable uh, society. Um, and I think that there are very mundane ways that you can see this, including in stuff that, again, it seems boring, but tax policy. Tax policy makes it that it's, it's much easier to actually save money as a homeowner than as a renter. Uh, even and legally, there are so many rights and ways to access political power that one has as a property owner that say renters do not have. And then there's a really important aspect about how um, property ownership actually leads to, can give people tools of mobility, um, upward mobility and success in the United States because we have kind of created a political system uh, and an economic system where most people's wealth is bound up in homes, meaning that the wealth that people can pass on um, to help people say pay for education, uh, to help people you know, maybe get kind of coveted, coveted opportunities all depend on perhaps the extent to which one could own a house and to which that house could potentially maintain or increase in value. So what that also then means is that since um, racism is so, so tied up in how property ownership works, um, and that even includes things like I mentioned, such as voting, right? We, we can talk a lot about race-based disenfranchisement in the United States, um, but it means that a lot of inequality um, and a lot of gaps in political power and wealth are also problems related to home ownership. So I think that, again, you, you can't really shake a stick um, in talking about the history of US politics or US history in general without kind of coming back to that central feature of the United States, which is property ownership, home ownership. So cities in the United States remain segregated. It's not like we haven't known about segregation. What are some of the current actors and you know machinery that is keeping America segregated? Why are we still segregated? So it's um it's a tough question because housing segregation can really sort of operate in very visible ways day to day. Like you try to look at a house and you're going to get turned away perhaps illegally based on the race that people perceive you to be, but it operates very abstractly as well. And one of the um, big things I look at in my book that I think still occurs today is looking at how different forms of investment actually create and perpetuate uh, housing discrimination or just also discrimination in cities. Uh, one of the biggest issues that cities are facing right now are uh, entire neighborhoods that seem to be run down or have abandoned houses Houses are actually owned by absentee investors, and those investors uh, have the protections of property owners and that they can't necessarily be compelled to do anything um, with that property. And so you have, um, and I think that this, you have this in Baltimore, St. Louis, big cities, small cities, in that you essentially have people doing what one historian named Andrew Call called investing in distress, 
essentially looking at neighborhoods and, and, and having a certain profit, a certain stake in actually keeping neighborhoods distressed until such time that they may choose to say, pass that house off or, or maybe reinvest their money elsewhere. Or one issue that we're also facing is if there's an affordable housing crisis, it also means that sometimes very distressed neighborhoods might ultimately start to be gentrified because there's a lack of choice elsewhere. And suddenly all those absentee investors who help actually keep a neighborhood in really bad condition for a long time start to see this huge return on their investment, which means that they, to them, they made a great decision in helping to sort of destroy a neighborhood. So I think that looking at investment and following the money is really important for understanding the big picture of who the actors are, sometimes hard to trace, but how they're essentially wielding their money and parking their money um, in ways that essentially prevent um, better conditions, especially for working class people. I think I think that's a really, really good point, especially just considering how capitalism and whatnot operates in the United States and how that's kind of the function by which we own and uh, possess our, our houses and everything. Um, but kind of continuing on talking about the contemporary bent and uh, discussions surrounding these policies, can you talk a little bit about your work in the context of this civil rights resurgence that we saw over the summer, specifically regarding the Black Lives Matter movement? Certainly, uh, I think we're at um, we're at a crossroads in American history where I think that issues that have um, always been there, white supremacy, um, violence, um, race, racist violence. They've always been there, but I think we're at a crossroads now in achieving kind of a critical mass of popular will, especially um, amongst white people who may have not had to think about it. Um, I think now we're at a, a crossroads where people may want to actually do something um, to create a more uh, equitable and equal uh, country. So Black Lives Matter isn't new, right? Um, it, it's the actual Black Lives Matter um, as a set of organizations and activists goes back into the Obama administration. But of course, fighting for um, Black life, um, for survival, is something that goes back to, that predates the United States itself. It goes back, of course, to things like uh, the slave trade, right? Um, to stories of endurance, of survival, of political activism and organizing. And that has that essentially has had to be a mainstay in especially black communities precisely because white supremacy has always been there, even though it's changed a lot over time. Um, right now, I think a lot of a lot of people um, well before I ever became a history professor have called this moment, uh, this early 20th century moment, second reconstruction. And um, that's kind of hearkening back to you know, the, the era after the Civil War when there was a kind of opportunity to reshape the racial order. And it met a very violent end uh, in the 1870s that led to the rise of Jim Crow. I think that um, the events, especially of, uh, of the start of 2021, have, I think, hammered that analogy home for me, especially more than ever, in that not only is the second reconstruction are we in that kind of moment like in 1877 where it's about to end very, very violently and uh, potentially with a way that actually instantiates white supremacy into the social order in brand new ways? I am actually hopeful 
that with the impetus behind Black Lives Matter, with the sort of changes um, that have come, especially after the summer and especially after the recent election, that maybe the era of second reconstruction will go differently than um, how first reconstruction went. But I do wanna say that even though this is a unique political moment and one where I could always talk about it in terms of uh, things like housing, things like activism um, and cities, I think it's also really important to acknowledge the continuities in that even if a lot of this may seem new to some listeners and some of it is new, I think that you know the question as a historian that I think I ask is new to whom? And I think that you would find that a lot of people, especially people who face different types of marginalization would say, this isn't new. This is something we've been fighting all along. So I just wanna kind of hold both of those things in the air at the same time, that this is a unique moment, but one that also you can kind of look at a long history. That is so incredibly interesting and such a great explanation. Before we went on, I kind of wanted to ask how like gentrification fits into your research, if you do any research on it. Can you talk about gentrification and how it fits into your work? Yes, uh, so gentrification, um, for, for those who may not be kind of as, as sort of well up on gentrification, I think in its most general form, uh, the gentrification refers to uh, a process by which neighborhoods, especially in American cities that had long sort of been um, deprived of government resources, been um, essentially sites of uh, racial segregation where you really see people kind of um, without the tools to maybe sort of move elsewhere, right? Where you see essentially a lack, a lack of resources, good schools, supermarkets, you start to see um, uh, folks often, um, often white, but not exclusively, start to actually live into, move into those areas as renters and as property owners, because there are essentially a lack of choices elsewhere due to um, a much more, a much larger national crisis of affordable housing. So um, coupled with this, wages are often stagnant and they're not keeping up with the times for a variety of reasons too, meaning that people's money, even if they're in relatively good jobs, may not take, may not take them as far as it used to. So they can't necessarily even afford things that they may have been able to afford 20, 30, 40 years ago. So really what happens with gentrification is the result of that is some people move into a neighborhood and with that, the cost of living and the property values go up because again, property values often tied to race, racism, and that results in um, displacement because the neighborhood's now unaffordable. Property taxes often go up because housing value goes up, meaning that it's also really expensive to try and live there if um, relative to what it had been. Um, but it also means that there's a lot, been a lot of race-based race displacement um, where people who had been living in that area where um, essentially that was undervalued now have to move further and further away, often from jobs that may have also been low-wage jobs. So they're spending more time commuting, more expensive. They probably have to work more jobs. And on top of that, they were forced out of their neighborhood. And gentrification essentially can almost think of it as it's almost always expanding in the sense that people, it's a continuous cycle of people being displaced and then being displaced again, then being displaced again. And part of this is tied to, I think, Sam, you mentioned a crisis of capitalism, right? So what gets really difficult with um, talking about gentrification, especially to people who I've been asked this, I, like people have asked me, am I a gentrifier? I said, well, I mean, yes, 
but let's think about the ethics of that. People don't necessarily want to come in to a neighborhood with the idea that they're going to change a neighborhood, but they're also being pressured from a sort of a more macro sense that they can't necessarily afford to live elsewhere. Meanwhile, racial segregation is working in so many different ways that displacement sort of follows a very recognizable uh, pattern. So gentrification, um, yeah, so gentrification is part of this huge crisis right now of affordable housing and of racial segregation going on throughout the United States. Um, this is kind of taking a bit of a, le a left turn here, but just to kind of double down on this, this issue of the intersection of housing and, and capitalism or, or of the role of the latter and the former, just to kind of expand on that. Do you think that the free market is the best way to distribute access to housing? Do you think that there ought to be different incentives other than the profit motive motivating the distribution of housing? Or do you think that even given some of these very real problems that we're talking about, the distribution of housing as a good is best facilitated via the free market? Hmm. You know, I think that's actually a really great question because I think it's a question a lot of people have. What are the best possible solutions to help address um, really un unavoidable, like essentially crises that you have to acknowledge, right? They're really present. They don't go away just because you look away. So that question, what is best? Um, I, I challenge, I, when people ask me free market versus government, the first thing I say is, has that ever actually been a scenario that's existed? Uh, and I think that based on my research, there, there really is no such thing as a free market or all government regulation as we know it. In fact, I mean, looking at something like redlining, where realtors helped write those policies, and those policies were all about rules for lending. Um, I don't think that there's, there's always been essentially a very blurry line. And I think that's a very blurry line that has ultimately, um, if you look historically, worked in favor of those who seek some type of profit in housing. Uh, so for instance, I think that developers have historically come off better than say renters in terms of the, re the policy results, but also the ways that the market seems to work. Now, where we are in our current moment is the product of that mixture, um, that mixture of government policy and uh, essentially of business interest and, and business, um, business operations in all of their forms. So I can't even necessarily imagine what it would look like to say either or, because I don't think that's ever actually happened on the ground. So maybe it's a thought experiment, an interesting thought experiment. But if I'm gonna go down that road of thought experiment, uh, I'll also say that if my priority uh, and I would I'd say that, so I'll, put, I'll put my cards on the table. My priority is seeing a maximum, maximum equity um, with maybe a little more indifference to profit. I would maybe prioritize equality over profit if I had to make that choice. I think that again, looking back historically, the moments where you see something like the racial wealth gap closing, was when you had really big sweeping legislation such as fair housing laws, such as um, limits on predatory lending, um, such as, well, mortgage assistance, right? Um, which also, by the way, helped that turned into like assistance for developers in the post-war housing market. 
So what are markets? Markets are essentially ways that you can look at how power operates at any time. So how do you essentially, I think really what we can say is we can reframe that question in some ways. How can we essentially acknowledge that power, that there will be power dynamics to consider? And how can we essentially create checks on those power dynamics or essentially channel some of that power dynamic into creating the best possible arrangement of maybe of, of policies, but also incentives, also constraints that would then also have to be implemented locally, statewide, nationally, and given that we we're talking about investment, possibly internationally in ways that I think would take a lot of creativity, um, but maybe possible. So, I mean, just like everything in politics, the answer is much more complicated than one or the other, but it's it's more about applying the proper regulations, changing incentives, and balancing power dynamics within the context of uh, a free market that's probably going to maximize both ethical profits and quality of human life. I would add a couple of things to that, because I, I think the jury's still out for me on, on the salience of the term free market. But mm -hmm. I think beyond that, two things I didn't mention was also changing who can have access to power, right? So if we look at, say, something like a planning commission, a zoning commission, um, until very recently, look at the Oval Office, right? Um, you generally see that the compounded impact of centuries of segregation and racism means that the people who get the seat at the table are, it's a very narrow slice of uh, who essentially can and maybe should get a seat at the table. So I think that in addition to everything we, we just mentioned, I think there also needs to be a serious consideration of how does one build or reshape or restructure institutions so that when it comes to discussing ideas, and creating these policies or these incentives that the people who are um, making decisions are potentially um, as representative um, are on, this, on, on the same page in terms of setting priorities um, and who are potentially being able to held, held accountable, that they're held accountable, um, maybe in different ways than we've seen historically. So I think that institution building, whether that's through government, whether that's through a professional association, uh, I think that needs to be a serious factor in any type of agenda for change. As we're wrapping up, we want to ask, what are you hopeful about with housing policy? And, you know, especially now that we, at the time of recording this, Joe Biden was just sworn in this morning. There are new things on the horizon regarding housing policy, what are we going to, what are we looking at? What are you hopeful about with all this? You know, how, how do you think this is all going to play out? Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm hopeful for a few things. Um, starting with when I was watching the inauguration, Joe Biden surprised me in a way that made me hopeful. Um, President Biden said he actually used the term white supremacy in his inauguration speech. Never in my wildest imagination what I have imagined a president of the United States using the term white supremacy, um, even 10 years, five years ago, I remember sitting in the audience of a talk by Ta-Nehisi Coates, and he had to stop what he was doing and have the audience sit with the discomfort of him using the term white supremacy. 
I think that that made me hopeful because he named it. He named one of the driving forces of inequality and of segregated housing policy. Now, does that mean that the Biden administration is potentially willing to confront uh, housing segregation head on? I think the jury's still out on that, um, but I think there are positive signs. So I think that that was a very positive sign. I think that's also a positive sign with like media coverage as well that we have, and I think this is thanks to Black Lives Matter and the protests in, uh, last year. I think that there's an increasing kind of reckoning with some of the big, the work that needs to be done. And I think that with the Biden administration, um, some of the initial policies that have been discussed include um, data-driven sort of uh, data-driven uh, incentives. Um, so he's going to potentially re-implement um, a, a fair housing rule that Trump um, had repealed. Now it was never enforced in the first place. It was never enforced even under Obama. Um, so that's, that's a whole other thing. But if this is uh, instituted, if this is reinstated, it means that federal money to a local government would be tied to data and reporting on local racial discrimination. So I think that even that idea, that idea that now the commitment to policy is also going to hinge on tying kind of data-driven observations of the segregation to money and resources is a huge step forward, especially if it's actually enforced. So I'm, I think that also is a huge change, right? Thinking about uh, in our in the previous administration, right? That essentially things like science and data were considered hostile, right? That they were that they were sometimes thrown out the window entirely. I think that that's also potentially an interesting return to um, maybe policy that is well considered. And if that applies to housing and coupled with an actual commitment to affordable housing, to ending housing segregation, and the ability to actually name and discuss white supremacy. I, I think that maybe, maybe for the first time in a while, I can actually say I'm hopeful. Professor Galozzo, thank you so much for joining us today. It was really, really great to have you. For our listeners, if you're interested, the book, How the Suburbs Were Segregated, is available online from Columbia University Press. Um, thanks again so much for taking the time with us today. Thank you. It was great. For more information about 1050 Bascom, visit polisci.wisc.edu and search for 1050 Bascom. 1050 Bascom is edited by Adam Wigger and Sam Beisman, produced by Amy Gangle and recorded remotely for now.